0: This is from 2 Corinthians 13. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you, unless, of course, you fail the test? And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong, not so that people will see that we have stood the test, but so that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong, and our prayer is that you may be fully restored. This is why I write these things when I am absent, that when I come, I may not have been harsh in my use of authority, the authority of the the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration, encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All God's people here send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, everyone, again on this brisk January day. Hope you out-of-town travelers are enjoying this. Met someone from Arizona, so he was really liking being here right about now. Uh, It's great to be with you. We are finishing up a rather long study of the Corinthian letters, and this is the very last portion of that, and we're calling it benediction, and Wherever you're coming from, if this is your regular place on Sunday morning, if you're visiting from out of town, or if you're wondering about Christianity, exploring, then I want you to know that God has a good word for all of us this morning. And so let's pray that we can hear that together. Father, I thank you that your book to us, your love letter, is so full of grace and so full of words of encouragement and so full of words of welcome that you are constantly seeking us out, constantly inviting us in. And wherever we're coming from, whether we have big questions about the nature of reality, about Christianity, if we have skeptical thoughts in our heads and we're surprised that we find ourselves here this morning, or whether we've been doing this for many years and many decades and things have become rather routine, I pray that you would surprise us this morning I pray that you would show up in ways that perhaps even startle us, and that your benediction, your good word, would rest upon us all. And We pray in Jesus' name, amen. There's a large number of churches, as some of you may know, that practice what's called the Revised Common Lectionary, and so a committee of pastors and scholars got together years ago and put together a common core of readings and texts that churches all over the world use, and so... Pastors and staff don't have to be creative in terms of figuring out what they're going to be reading and preaching on, on Sunday morning. You just kind of preach the text, and millions of Christians around the world are re- reading and preaching and learning from that same text. And so we don't do this regularly, but I love that idea that you're involved with Christianity wherever it's gathering, around the world, reading and contemplating the same text And this morning, we're actually using the Revised Common Lectionary text for uh, this Sunday as a part of Trinity Sunday. And the last part of 2 Corinthians in particular, the Common Lectionary sort of pulls out just two verses that really, if you don't understand the context, it's hard to understand why they would choose this one, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's our A-benediction. We use it fairly regularly here. And they've chosen it because this is Trinity Sunday. And it's one of the fullest accounts of Trinitarian thought within one passage in all of the Bible. It's not quite the classic Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it's awfully close. And the doctrine of the Trinity is, as you may know, and as any good Jehovah's Witness or Mormon will tell you, is not spelled out explicitly in one particular passage, but rather the early church, the ancient church, sort of cobbled it together based upon portions of Scripture that were scattered throughout. And this picture emerged of a God who exists in three wholly distinguishable, divine persons who share one essence, but constitute one deity. That's a long way to say what we've classically defined as the Trinitarian understanding of God. And if you are here exploring, this is one of the things that sets Christianity apart. If we're wrestling with these ideas of exclusivism and particularism and do all roads lead to Rome, this is one of the ways that Christianity distinguishes itself and one of the central places that other world religions and other sects would find anathema to belief. It's a very particular, very idea, very particular and big idea. And this is one of a handful of doctrines that is so important and so central that we say that all Christians everywhere believe in the Trinity. They believe this or else they cease to be defined as Christian. That's how central this idea of the Trinity is. And there are literally thousands of denominations in the U.S. where people, mostly men, have seen fit to leave one church, leave one denomination, and start a new one. Some of it over theological disagreements that seem so obscure as if to be insignificant, but we start new Denominations and new sects over these things. Some of them are just relational problems. People get sideways with one another and say, I don't want to be a part of your church anymore and I'm going to start my own one, or just plain hubris that what we believe is so unique and so different from all the other churches in our neighborhood, we need to start a new denomination. And Paul is arguing here that the Trinity, that this idea is so core and so central that it should create this centripetal force in the life of the church that acts as sort of a bulwark against those ideas, that it's powerful enough to hold people together despite differences, especially those differences around the edges. And we spent a number of months in First and Second Corinthians, these letters where Paul exhibits this enormous pastoral concern for these people who are very problematic people, and he still loves them. And he cares for them, and he wants to come visit them. He planted the church, and now he's engaged in this rather lengthy correspondence with them to answer their questions. That is, 1 Corinthians was an answer to a letter that he had received, and then 2 Corinthians was related to a different set of circumstances. And we think there was at least two more letters that would have been considered Corinthian letters. And so, he is spending a great deal of time and maybe a few tears and frustration for a congregation that was, frankly, a headache. <laughs> and they may have been the thorn of in Paul's flesh that we talked about a few weeks ago. 1 Corinthians is Paul's long reply to this original letter that was chock full of questions and controversies and other evidence of these bitter factions that were happening in this church. Now, scholars think that the church at Corinth probably wasn't that large, Um, and yet it had quickly sort of balkanized into these units that claimed various spiritual heads. I follow Peter, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. And you see, in those days, this was a fairly small church. There wasn't a church on the corner that you could go to when you got mad at your pastor, mad at the spiritual leadership, mad at a decision, or you had a little bit different view of a theology that the leadership of your church was taking. You couldn't just go down the street and shop for a new one. This was the church. And so, to solve that problem is they basically just created factions within the church. They didn't have to leave. They just said, well, I like Peter more than Paul. I'm going to follow Peter. And I'm going to follow Apollos. And so, you had this balkanized existence or balkanized reality in, in this church. And each of those contained further subunits divided by social class, intellectual class, economic class, and fights broke out all over the place within this church over whose spiritual gifts were more important and whose teaching on important theological matters was the most pristine and whose notions on social justice were the most Christ-like. And on top of that, you had guys that were Frequently, frequenting uh, brothels and sleeping with prostitutes and didn't consider it a problem. And one man, at least, we read about it in 1 Corinthians, was sleeping with his mother-in-law. And everyone thought it was just perfectly fine. This was the church. Apart from those things, everything was going swimmingly. Sometimes you hear Christians lamenting the state of the modern church. And if we could only go back to the early church where they had it all together... They had it all figured out, but they were a mess just like we are. And if we went back there, you may have noticed you would have to start exchanging holy kisses with one another, and these weren't little polite pecks on the cheek. These were likely mouth-to-mouth kisses and cross-gender, so be careful what you wish for. But then sometime after that letter, between their reception of Paul's corrective letter, that is 1 Corinthians, taking on all of those things… A few among the Corinthian faithful began to identify with these so-called super apostles that were coming into the church and infiltrating it and trying to get people to follow them rather than Paul. So, you had this further factionalism, and they were telling them that they needed to start believing in these, all, all these other notions. And so, what we now call 2 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, depending on your political persuasions, we find Paul going to great lengths to defend his credentials as an apostle and the orthodoxy of his teachings. And so that's sort of what we get to this morning, this sincerely Paul part of the letter, this coda on everything he's had to deal with in these two letters and probably one in between dealing with the problems of the church. This is the sincerely Paul. This is how he wraps it up. And here at the end of this exhausting correspondence, and you saw, if you were here with us, a lot of tears and a lot of pain and anguish that Paul's wrestling with his feelings towards this church. And it spanned many months, if not years. And here at the end, Paul raises these two weary hands to speak one last blessing upon them, one last benediction. He doesn't have the strength in his arms that he once did. He's planted that church in Corinth all those years ago, and he's been through enormous hardships himself. And he's had these pastor tears over the situation in Corinth. And still he raises these tired hands, metaphorically speaking, in this last passage. And he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be upon you, and the love of God, and the fellowship Of the Holy Spirit. And that's his sincerely Paul, that's his coda, that's his summary of everything he's written thus far. And what more is there to say, really, than that? From the fullness of the triune God comes everything we need to exist and thrive in the often fractious communities that we inhabit. Now what is he saying here? Three quick things in this benediction. He's saying that you both possess and that you are to lean into three particular things. The first one is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that if you're part of this church, you possess it in some real way, but you also have to lean into it and actualize that in your own personal life. What do we learn from this is that we need the grace of Jesus to be brought into our church, brought into the spiritual home that we inhabit. For us to move into the church as individuals, to be deposited in a new spiritual home, we need the grace of Jesus to do that. We don't actualize our own Christianity. We are brought in by the grace. We are invited in. We are welcomed by Jesus. We are spiritually relocated in Christ as baptized people if you're part of his church. And Paul uses this foundational idea over and over and over to sort of untie these ethical knots that the Corinthian church is presenting. Remember the grace of Jesus. Remember that you're baptized into his name. That's his answer for all of these difficult difficult problems and we need that. If we're part of this church or any other church, it has problems just like the Corinthian churches. Our church and we need the grace of Jesus to continue forgiving and re-forgiving and re-forgiving all of the wounds that you accumulate by being part of a human institution. We need the grace of Jesus to do that. In all of the innumerable innumerable ways that we manage to hurt other people and we get hurt by other people. We need Jesus to be gracious to us in all of our failure and fractiousness and self-centeredness, and we need to extend that same grace that He gives us, we need to extend that to others. So, first of all, you possess and you need to lean into the grace of Jesus Christ. But secondly, you possess and you need to lean into the love of of the Father. And Paul reverses that, or I should say we tend to reverse that in our statements of the Trinity. The Father comes first, but here it's second. Where would we be without the love of the Father? For while we were yet sinners, God the Father sent the Son to die for us. That's how much we need the love of the Father, and that's how much you actually receive it. He sent Jesus to die. The Father loved us, and so He sent Jesus. Don't we often think about Jesus as standing in for us and absorbing the wrath of God the Father, as if He's come to convince God the Father to love us? That Jesus is the loving one, and the Father is sort of this wrathful deity that would. Hard to know and hard to relate to because He's mad at us. But Jesus is sent. The Father sends Jesus. He comes on a mission from God the Father. There is no discord or conflict within the Trinity about you. The Father needs no convincing. He moves into our world with love and He sends His Son. You see, As we talked about in this study, wrath is an aspect of God's love. Wrath is an action. It's not a core component of who God is. Wrath is an aspect of how He moves into the world against destruction and against oppression and against inequality. It doesn't refer to a personal animosity toward you that Jesus fixes. Jesus is sent by the Father to exhibit His love. The Father's fundamental orientation to the world and to you is love. And so He acts on your behalf. And He has acted, if you are a part of His church, sending Jesus, bringing you into the church. So you possess, but we also need to lean into, the grace of Jesus and the love of the Father And finally, we possess but also need to lean into how badly we need this koinonia, this fellowship of the Holy Spirit who took up residence in our lives after what we celebrated last week, Pentecost, Sunday. The third person of the Trinity that we celebrate today alone is the glue that can hold people together who sometimes, let's be honest, don't have a lot in common other than our common confession of faith. The list of things that we try to use to bind us together is very long, and sadly, through the years, it's been race, it's been ethnicity, it's been politics, it's been denomination, it's been theological systems. And the slightest deviation between these things can lead to severing the relationship because I don't have the same thing in common with you as if differences on secondary matters trumps the unity that is found in confession of God in three persons. And we should call that what it is. It's sin, and it's bad theology, frankly. In farming communities that we're familiar with, each farmer sort of figures out their land and they put a fence around it. Why is that? It's to delineate what they own, but it's also to keep their livestock close in and to keep it from intermingling with other livestock, and everyone gets confused. But in rural communities where farms or ranches cover an enormous distance, if you think about farms in Australia, they're called stations. They're so large. They need their own zip code. Well, what do farmers do in those situations? Their holdings are so vast that a fence would be not only impractical, but it'd be superfluous because it could be hundreds of miles away from where the cattle are roaming. So what do they do? Instead of spending millions and millions of dollars on a fence that's sort of secondary and superfluous, they dig a deep hole into the ground and they sink a well and they create this life source of running clean water that the cattle or the livestock can drink from. And what happens then is the fence, the boundary, isn't necessary because the cattle, the livestock know where that hole is and they don't wander very far. And so what's central about that flock is that it relativizes all of their instincts to drift and to wander because of that source, that clean water that is coming up. They hover around it and that's what binds them together. And what Paul is telling us is that the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is that water source. It's that thing in the middle of the church that if we understand it, if we get how vastly important it is and vital, then we don't wander. And we don't look at these dumb little differences and these things that we don't have in common together as so important anymore because this well, this source, is so important. What's at the center of in town, if you're wondering, if you're curious, if you're exploring, or if you've forgotten. It's not our distinctiveness from all the other churches in the area, it's our sameness. It's the fact that we drink from that well of the Holy Spirit, the fellowship, and the Trinitarian idea of who God is, and justification by grace through faith, and the death and the resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. It's the sameness that we share in common with all Christians everywhere, that makes us who we are, not our distinctiveness, not how we tend to or want would instinctually want to parse out our differences, in other words, what is most significant about us is our center rather than our boundary it 's not the fence that keeps people out or keeps people in it's the well it 's the source of life in Jesus, in God, the love of God the Father, and in the Holy Spirit, and when all it's all is said and done in these two letters. This weary pastor holds up probably wrinkled, tired, calloused hands to shower down grace upon people who really don't deserve it and aren't necessarily looking for it. They're difficult people, as we all are. He gives this Trinitarian blessing of grace and love and fellowship. And it's through that foundation that the parts of verse 11 come, restoration, one-mindedness, and peace. you got to have the first before you work for the others. And when you have the love of the Father, the grace of Jesus, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, and only when you have that do those other things become possible, restoration and one-mindedness and peace. The peace descends not because of uniformity or the cessation of difference in the congregation, and not even after all of these ethical difficulties are worked out, but it comes before. Peace comes through grace in the midst of all of this. It comes through love. It comes through the fellowship of the Spirit. And so, ultimately, it's not something that we achieve it's not something to be achieved, it's something to be asked for. It's something that we invite in by prayer and hoped for. And if the Trinity means anything at all, it means this that from all eternity, three divine persons have shared this unbounded, radical love between each other. And then once upon an eternity, they thought, to shower it upon you, and to create this universe of people that God could love. They decided to share that love with a universe of creatures like you and I, those creatures who oftentimes aren't all that lovely, but because of the character of God, we're not unlovable. And so the grace and the love and the fellowship keeps coming it keeps pouring in, and we need to lean into it. You possess it, but you have to lean into it. It's God's nature to send it, and it's in our nature to need it. And so may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that we more and more we would recognize as a church and as individuals that we do indeed possess Your grace and possess Your love in an unlimited supply, and that we possess the fellowship with one another, even when we push against it sometimes. I pray instead we would lean into it, and that as we come to this table in just a moment, it would represent for us that fellowship that we share, that all of the differences all of the things that we think are so significant that divide us, whether it's color of our skin, whether it's economic station, whether it's a wrong that's been committed, that those things, while seemingly important on the outside, are relativized and obscured and ultimately obliterated in the gospel. And I pray that we would look to the things that are most central and most important in what we find in the gospel as bringing us together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.